0: You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 54 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, I wanted to go in-depth onto a specific topic rather than the sort of singular uh, story of an individual. Um, And that topic was uh, British basketball teams competing in Europe. Most notably, the most recent one, uh, Leicester Riders. So we spoke to Leicester Riders Managing Director and co-owner, who hadn't fully clocked was uh, co-owner until this show, um, Russell Levinston, to discuss what Leicester Riders did in the 2018-19 season when they competed in the Basketball Champions League. And now for context, if you weren't aware, they went into the Basketball Champions League qualification round uh, where they played Danish powerhouse back and bears. Unfortunately, they were not able to pick up a win, which meant they then, they then dropped down into uh, the FIBA Europe Cup where they went Owen 6 uh, had a rough time of injuries, um, but also it was a huge learning experience, um, both on and off the court, which you'll hear all about. So we went in-depth in all of that stuff, costs, sponsorship, Fans, media, um, yeah, all of the sort of uh, surrounding topics of what it takes for a basketball team to go in Europe. Why a team hasn't gone into Europe uh, in the eleven years preceding um, 2018-19 season, and why they obviously chose not to go back in this season, and whether they're considering going back in in the preceding seasons super interesting conversation as always before we get into it please do go check out our patreon account p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash there you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution of as much as would you like to support the work we're doing to improve the quality of the work we're doing and help grow our contributions to british basketball so please go and check it out patreon.com forward slash hoodfix. also Please take two seconds out of your day to give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be much appreciated. It helps us, uh, the podcast spread far and wide. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a like. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, I always forget to do that. Um, And then finally, uh, if you want to reach out to me, if you've got any feedback, you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at HoopsFix, or you can drop me an email directly, sam at hoopsfix.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts. Anyway, that is enough from me. Here is episode 54 of the HoopsFix podcast with Russell Levenston. Russell, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very
0: much. Thanks for having me. So there's one main focus uh, why I wanted to get you on the show. Like I said, I was talking about sort of Leicester Riders going into Europe. I think there's a lot of lessons there um, for people to, to learn from. Um, but before we do that, I just want to kind of go into a little bit into, into your background, um, how you came to be at the Leicester Riders. As, is your official position the general manager? Is that your kind of official role, title?
1: Managing director.
0: Managing director. So how you came to be the managing director. Um, I know you've got a, a, a bit of a history in the game. You are involved with Vince back in the day at Hemel. So c- can you kind of give us the, I guess, the high-level overview of uh, how you first got involved with basketball and um, I guess how you got into the position that you're in now uh, in Leicester?
1: Well, I first got involved uh, in basketball at the age of 11. Um, obviously, first of all, I was playing, uh, but really got involved in, I suppose, professional side and BBL basketball at the age of 11. Um my head of PE, Graham Cracknell, um, was the assistant coach for Hemel Royals. Um, and he called me one day and said, we've got no one to do the stats. Uh, will you come down and do the stats? Uh, so that's how it all began. And I was sat on the bench uh, as an 11-year-old doing the stats with the coaches and uh, spent a lot of my time um, from probably the age of 11, uh through to about about 15, 16, doing that um, and traveling with the team, spending a lot of time most evenings and weekends. um, And then got more involved with uh, uh, Vince. Uh, You could probably say Vince was a bit like a surrogate father to me uh, growing up and uh, spent most of my evenings and weekends uh, uh, learning what to do. Also, probably a little bit of not what to do. Um, And... uh, uh, but had so many great times. Uh, learned so much from from him and uh, through Hemel Royals, then moving across to Watford and Hemel Royals. Um, went on from just not just being a stats guy, but also going on to sort of uh, running game nights, uh, organizing community events, uh, and then uh went moved on to setting everything up and and, and running everything for for him in Milton Keynes days so that was a big travel for me actually as a 15 16 year old going up on the train uh, from Hemel uh, most uh weekends sometimes also in the evenings uh going up and down that train track uh, remember them days quite uh, and uh, really really enjoyed my time uh, volunteering and and helping and I suppose learning to do and how to run a a, a british basketball club
0: so then how did you end up at Esther?
1: So um, I then went away to study uh, for a little bit when I got to sort of 18, 19, was down in Folkestone, spent quite a bit of time down there um, and uh, then what happened was uh, the day I got my qualification, um, I was a qualified uh, AAT accountant, decided actually this is, can't be the rest of my life. Uh, I love basketball. I grew up with it all. Um, this can't be. So actually, the day I got my qualification, I actually handed my notice in that day um, and called Vince. Um, and Vince said, actually, strangely enough, uh, I've just got a job uh, come up uh, here. So do you want to come work here? So I then went and worked as uh, sort of a community stroke general manager for Vince uh, uh, for, for about two years. Two years. Um, so I'm um, so forced to into a, into a paid role. And, and I suppose at that point, uh, I had a huge passion to, to drive basketball in the community, um, setting up programs like Hoops for Health and after-school clubs and organizing the, the community coaches. And at that point, a lot of the players going into schools and uh, on that side and, and driving ticket sales. And I suppose learning a lot of uh, the trade as such uh, of, of how British Basketball Club works and uh, how, how to make it work. Um, I then... Um, Decided for for different reasons that um, uh, I wanted to do something different, and I went to work for Reebok uh, Fitness Equipment, uh, who was one of the sponsors of uh, Milton Keynes Lions, um, and uh, uh, worked in boxing and fitness uh, as marketing and brand manager. So I did that for about two years. Um, But again, I got that basketball itch. There's only a certain amount of time you can be away from it, and uh, um, and want to be a part of part of it, and I. I've been a part of all them years with Vince and, uh, Hemel Royals and Milton Kings Lions is, uh, I want to have an opportunity to see if I could do it my way, um, as such. And, uh, I was talking to Birmingham Panthers at the time, uh, whilst I was working for Reebok and, um, couldn't really get anything to work there. And Andy from BBL said to me that Leicester had a few, uh, issues and, uh, they were holding a, a meeting with their, uh, um, fans and sponsors and, and that side, uh, this was sort of mid August. And, uh, and I went along to that, uh, and that's really how the conversation started. I was lucky enough I bought a property um, when I was young. Um, my grandparents and my parents helped me to buy a property when I was younger, um, and actually I sold that property and used that money uh, to invest to, into, uh, into the riders at that point uh, to take on uh, my position. So that's really uh, how my Leicester journey began uh, in 2007.
0: So it's 2017. So, so you have an, an ownership stake, equity stake in the Riders as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, myself and Kevin, uh, So I'm one of the owners of, alongside Kevin Routledge.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, okay, so that was around 2007. So you've been there now what, 13, 13 odd years. So you've obviously seen a lot, got a lot of experience. And I'm assuming probably learned a lot of what you do on the job because it's not like there's a there's a training manual that you can pick up or a course that you can do of how you sort of learn these things i think with a lot of things in british basketball you end up just jumping uh, jumping at the deep end and just working out as you go along um i guess yeah i mean how, how's that been for you kind of like getting getting the the experience and, and finding out what you need to do as you go
1: yeah 100 percent. i think um and if you'd have probably had this interview with me at the end of that first season um i would have probably said to you, what the hell have I got myself involved in? And um, I didn't realise what I was actually really getting myself involved in that first season. Um And I think my biggest things was the foundations that I had, though, and the experiences I had already that i had learned from working with Vince um, to what worked and what didn't work. Um, and then I suppose progressing that and, and doing it yourself and, and, and adjusting things. And I think for me, uh, the passion was always about trying to get British basketball out there and getting it known. Uh, so it I, I still is, but um, at that point, I felt it was such a big secret. Um, and how do I spread that word and have the impact? It made a huge impact on my life. And how do I make that impact so many more people's lives? And I had a huge passion to try and create a, a, a player pathway as well, um, to try and offer young British players the opportunity to have things that I never had when I was growing up of high-level facilities, high-level coaching alongside high-level education um, and giving them opportunities that they didn't always have to go to America because that was before, it's still very much the uh, the American dream, but um, but we're able to do it actually at a much earlier age with with our junior national league programs and the academy programs at, up at Charmwood. Um, and then obviously we now have uh, really set up a great program at loughborough university as well and we started to see players developing through and i think that's where my passion comes from is uh, is that development side of stuff um so in 2007 sorry just going back to that first point If you asking me what, what what that point was was the main thing i set up was the hoots for health program the more, the biggest thing i wanted to set up was a grassroots program in leicester um prior to that it, it was very very limited um and For me, that was the biggest thing that I'd learned is that starting from the beginning uh, is you've got to have a really good community base. Um, So that's what I spent a lot of my time in them initial few years was creating them community programs to to come and watch more riders' games and and convert them into ticket sales and and that side.
0: Do you find the clubs, uh, is there like a good sort of sharing ecosystem between the different clubs? Like if you're trying to do something that another club has done, you know, do you find that you can kind of share sort of I don't know, that's tips? It's the wrong sort of word, but you know, insight, information about kind of like how different clubs are doing things, what you can learn, take it away, and then sort of apply it to your own club. Have you found other clubs that are helpful in that sense?
1: 100%. Yeah, I think uh, for me, people like Paul Blake. Um, well, I've obviously since uh, I took over, in Seven was awesome uh, for letting us in, showing us different things they were doing. Um, uh, Sarah at Sheffield as well Like there's lots of people that um, have, have provided a lot of knowledge and support um, and I've tried to do the same so for example when James Bryce came in at Cheshire, Jamie's just come in at Manchester, for me we were only stronger if we work together so um, I, open, I open, up, open up all the time I did it, this is what I did, um, provide them the documentation alongside it and just try to share that as much as possible. And I think we need to do way better with that as clubs. Um, I know one of my ambitions has been to try and set up this club's forum of sharing of information. We we don't have that forum at the moment in uh, in British basketball. And I think that's a really important thing for us to... We have a lot of passionate people, um, but actually how do we support them, passionate people, to provide them the tools to to be successful in their areas? I don't see as... um, uh, other clubs as competition. I see it as we're British basketball and we've got to help each other to drive forward. Um, don't get me wrong, when we cross the line and uh, and you play a game or whatever else, yeah, it's always a bit of friendly banter, but there's that level of respect that you need um, to support each other because the, the more successful Newcastle are, the more successful London are, um, and that side. And, and there's, there's lots of things that I, I've tried to help and uh, a lot of the things Vince helped me with, but there's a lot of things I, I still try and help. Trying to uh, the UEL University came up here to meet with me to discuss how the partnership works and all that sort of stuff. And I think all that sort of side is really, really important that we help each other. And for me, that's going to only provide more opportunities for British players and and also continue to challenge what we've created and uh, continue to drive us forward as well. Because we need everybody else to to to, to have what we have and uh, provide them outlets and provide them opportunities.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. You're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And I think that is uh, when you talk about the BBL. I think one of the issues, if you want to call it that, is the disparity between you know the resource and the organisations at the top and at the bottom, and uh, yeah, the only way that's going to change is is by sharing. But also, you need the money, right? You need the budgets, you need the people that are willing to invest in it to make it happen in the first place. So, um, yeah, there's obviously, like I said, there's lots of stuff to talk about, but I do want to focus on Europe. Um, so, let's talk. You've been in since two thousand and seven. Uh, I'm assuming that in that time. Uh, Europe has kind of always been like, I think everyone always speaks about Europe. Like, oh, we want to do it one day. Everyone wants to do it. Everyone aspires to do it. So kind of how long have you been aware of that floating around in the last sort of decade or so of wanting it to be a, a dream and aspiration? And then I guess what were the first steps when it to make it actually start becoming a realistic prospect?
1: Um, so if we start from 2007, um, my first engine objectives was to create a sustainable BBL club in Leicester because obviously previously it had lots of ups and downs, wasn't sustainable. Um, so that was the first aims and objectives. And the, and the second part of that was, um, I used to use this saying a lot in the office and to the staff, was let's uh, if we could just add a brick every single day and just keep getting better every single day and do something positive to move our club forward, we're going to be better. And if we add that up and in a year's time, we'll be even better. Um, and then I had changed that to let's keep adding a brick and you never know, we might, do, might build a marina one day let's keep adding the uh, foundations and and that side obviously that was the next step we then we then built the arena um, and then once we built the arena that next step was let's create a sustainable franchise um, a basketball franchise that can play in Europe um, and that's the ambition is that we want to be a a basketball club who's um, hugely successful obviously here in England but we want to be sustainable in European competition um, and that actually started when we knew we were going to get the arena and when we start to progress that, it started with inviting teams like um, Obradoro from the ACB, Acapi All-Star. Um, we had a big tournament at Loughborough University before we even had the arena, knowing that that was eventually going to be an ambition of ours to to try and compete um, in Europe. So for us, the best way of doing that was to learn what it takes to host. Um, and also, um, we travelled to Sweden in Norshipping. Um, We went across to Obradoro as well and and then sort of three or four days look like in regards to the travel, the playing of games um, uh, and and what you have to do in that. And I think that as much as people will see that what we did as playing Europe was one season, actually, we had about five years building up to that of learning what it takes to host teams logistically um, and what level you need to be at. Because initially when we did the first time, we learned a lot actually um, around what... What worked and what didn't work, and uh, even to the little things of uh, not just the hotel, but the type of quality of food you have to provide, the type of travel quality you have to provide, the level of communication, um, and, uh, and and how you do all of that, and I suppose, them foundations that we laid in pre-seasons for them four or five years years leading up to playing in Europe, um, gave us the ability to have the confidence that we could travel. Uh, uh, to places in Europe um, and play games. Uh, and same thing as hosting uh, teams because, okay, basketball is basketball. When you cross the line, you've got two teams. That's e- that's the easy part, hosting the game part. Actually, it's everything before that and everything after that um, and putting all of that together. Um, and even to the extent it's not just the uh, teams, but it's also the officials. Um, one of the biggest things of coordination of is the commissioner and um, uh, coordinator and the referees flights, travel food plans um, cost of all of that. Um, that, that that was the big step I suppose the next step from what we've done hosting pre-season wise to actually doing it in Europe and uh, and also the immense amount of paperwork that, that took to meet all the FIBA regulations and um, making sure that we didn't get fined every single game and making sure that everything we didn't meet, that we had approval, um, that we got signed off from them. Uh, we had to actually purchase, purchase a certain things like 24-second clocks that they had to have the decimal place from five down. Um, there was a lot of that side of stuff. Um, to be honest, we did a lot of research as well as visiting other teams that are playing in Europe and trying to get a lot of budget information. One of the hardest things for me was actually get a legitimate budget from a team in Europe that said, this is what it costs us to play in Europe. Um, No one could actually provide that. Even the Irish team, I don't know if you remember, there was an Irish all-star team the year before we played um, and they did it. And that's a governing body that put that together And they still couldn't provide us a a full outline. They gave me some roundabout numbers on some different things, but it wasn't a really clear budget outline. So that was my biggest concern going into Europe of actually what is the amount of money we really need. Um, We we put a budget together um, and we weren't too far off of that uh, from what we thought, Um, but it was... if you have to charter a flight and, and that sort of stuff and it's them sorts of uh, risks that are a little bit out of your control depending on who you draw. We were quite lucky, obviously in the first round we played Champions League qualifiers and the first round we were pretty happy that we drew uh, Denmark uh, back and bears because the first thing was before we even looked at basketball was there was flights that was fairly reasonable that we could get to them and uh, um, and support that. And and then obviously we were... Sorry.
0: So So let's... This- Let's not beat around the bush here. So the uh, the cost, right? Obviously, you're just saying it's hard to get an idea of the budget, and teams won't give you specifics. Yep. You know, when you know <laughs> other BBL teams or any any team, how much is it going to cost? Like on top of what you what you're normally spending, that sort of foray into Europe. Um, you know, what you ended up doing, how much more did it actually end up costing you you guys in the club?
1: We we, we, look, we, we looked at the number was a hundred thousand for us. Um, we didn't actually end. We were a bit shy of that. Um, but for me, um, that's what the number was. Uh, to, to We increased our playing budget a little bit, but the majority of 80% of them costs was actually on the operational side of stuff, of delivering Europe um, and that sort of stuff and so, uh, and ensuring. So
0: when you know that you need an extra 100 grand compared to what you normally have, like, how did you fund that what was the process Like, was it a case of oh, we're going, get, we're going to obviously have extra game nights at home with European competition so we're going to sell them out so we're going to get revenue that way is it okay we need to find a sponsor and they're going to, to put the money like, kind of, how did you approach coming up with another, another six figures
1: that was sponsors so to be honest the, the, the majority of that money that we raised from that was sponsorship so we went to sponsors uh, we held a couple of sponsors events and explained that this was part of what we want to do as a club um tried to get as many sponsors on board um and then we went round to a range of our sponsors and said <laughs> i'm really sorry mate the kids are just coming. in <laughs> guys can you come out please <laughs> sorry this is the uh covert uh, yeah. <laughs> reality of <laughs> having a four and a seven year old running around the um so so yeah that was the biggest thing we did and we got great support from Gelson homes um uh, seafree construction, um, uh, uh, lumber Um
0: But how, how, how did you sell it to them? Like, on what basis? Like, what were you actually selling? You were saying, look, we need an extra 100 grand from you. Uh, this is what you're going to get in return because, you know, you. You didn't end up on TV uh, here obviously like we'll, I do want to get into sort of the media coverage side of things as well but like um, kind of what were you selling as a package to be able to justify getting an extra hundred grand from from various different sponsors
1: well I think the big thing of all was weird done a lot in Britain over like the last three or four seasons and a couple of the sponsors had, had, had started to sort of say well what's next and that aspect of that sort of stuff so um, the leverage was getting into a different market and obviously the problem with some of them sponsors actually it didn't actually affect their market because someone like jelson homes they're not going to sell homes to people in hungary um so it was very much around the vision of a club and the support that that they believed that that was the right thing for us to do as a club um and i suppose we've we've done a really good job at um working with them sponsors and engaging with them and making them feeling part of the club um, they're not just a sponsor they're actually a, a key piece and a key pin to the, to, to, to the club um, and knowing that that's an important part of the next part of the journey and I suppose that's what we built in strategically and then a couple of years beforehand of this is something we want to do this is something where we want to go um, and we actually did a, a, a lot of work the season before for that summer, that summer, summer so we, so we did that summer but we decided let's have a full year at it Let's have a let's have a proper go in regards to making sure that we get everybody's support. And I suppose it's working with them, sponsors and people to to explain to them that yes, they're going to get certain coverage. We did try and get into new into new sponsors, um, but again, like you say, they want to see numbers, they want to see details, they want to see how what's the viewing audience is, what's all all of that aspect of it. So we really tried to use the basis that we had as a, as a, as a club and sponsors to. Um, to ask them to provide additional income that they wouldn't normally provide us on top of the budget um, to support us going into Europe, and that was the only way that we could do it at that time.
0: Yeah, do you think do you think it's fair to say that actually um, it wasn't necessarily because they thought they were going to get more return on their investment? It was actually because. They're a part. They feel a part of what you want to do. What you do, they want to support. What you do is almost like. I mean, is maybe a bit harsh, but it's like we want to. We you know we want to support what you're doing or whatever, rather than oh this is going to lead to a bunch more sales for us. You know.
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, they're, they're all pretty much Leicester businesses that want to see Leicester put on the map. Um, uh, football have done it recently with champ. They played in the Champions League as well. Off the, off the back of winning uh, the Premiership, um, and actually it, it was good for for Leicester as a whole to the next season for us then to, to do that for basketball um, and I think that that was, that was a big part of it as well and the general success of Leicester Sport um, and putting Leicester Sport on the map and uh, uh, I suppose for us talking to them about us being the, ready to do that for British basketball as well and that was a big passion for us so the reason for us doing it was to try and uh, put British basketball on the map to say, actually, we can compete with these European teams and we can deliver European competition and uh, we do have the infrastructure and the facilities to do that too.
0: Do you think that, um, obviously, in retrospect, when you look at it now, do you feel like, uh, you know, you just said that you didn't end up actually putting too much towards player budget. The extra money was generally for logistics and and, um, the -the off-the-court stuff. Do you look back and think, actually, you need to spend more on player budget because essentially you were using almost the same budget that you'd have in, in regular competition going into a competition where I heard Rob say on a, on a, on a pod the other day, uh, he was saying that, uh, you know, you're playing against Asari and they've got players who've got a salary that's your entire, more than your entire uh, roster's budget. So like, you know, in retrospect, when you look look back on the experience, you think actually we should have had a, uh, more money to spend to bring in better players. Well,
1: we went, and, there's definitely way. Don't get me wrong. If you give me uh, an extra million quid, we, we'll be even way more competitive. Like we can really, really make an impact. Um, but we felt that with what we had and what we'd done previously in European competition and, and competition we'd come up against, we felt that we could be competitive. And we went with the route of continuity. Um, and we brought a lot of players back. Like Jamel came back, Connor, um, some of the guys that uh, um, we felt, and we felt with that continuity we could upset a few things and, and, and we could compete. Um, our, our biggest thing of all was um, we we had that huge injury to a key player for us three days before our first game in the Champions League qualifier against Bakken um, with Pierre Hampton. Um, the last second, actually he shouldn't have even been in practice. Don't even talk to Rob about this. Rob still gets uh, fired up about this every time we have a conversation and uh, he shouldn't have even yet. Rob told him to sit out of the last bit of practice and start icing. And Pierre was like, oh, no, I'm going to run this last thing. And he, he, and, he, and, he and he did it. And uh, he, he, he came down on Alex Larson's ankle, turned his ankle. And uh, and that took him out of near enough the whole European competition. He played a couple of games half fit down, down the stretch for us. But, and he was such a key component. He played with us for two years. Um, uh, obviously, he'd start to take that role that Drew had with us previously. And um, he was such a key person that we built that team around as well. Um. Uh, which was really tough, tough for us, and then and then we had the injury to Trayvon, and he wasn't fully healthy because of his knee, and um, and that aspect of stuff. So we that 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 season wasn't easy for us. I felt that if we'd had a fully fit team, um, and we were super competitive in Europe, I felt uh, there was a lot of games that we were, we, we run teams close. Um, I remember Sassari, who went on to win the competition, at home our first game against them. Uh, it was six points coming into the last couple of minutes and uh, uh, I, the guy made a couple of big threes going down, down the stretch. Otherwise, uh, we were right in that game and that was with a team that, that wasn't fully fit. And, and like you say, that's with, they had one player on that team that was way more than, nearly double what our b- whole budget was. So when you start looking at that, it's like, wow, the fact that we were on that playing court with them, competing with them um, and, uh, and doing that with a majority of British British players as well. That was one of the other, the other things that we spotted. We had a lot of talent on that team. Um, and we're playing against teams with five, six Americans. Um, and I remember going to Sassari one game away. We had one American on that team because uh, J.R. Holder had an issue, that we, uh, injury side, um, and DeAndre Burnett had an injury. We were waiting for another American to come in, um, uh, Wayne Martin, so we went there with one American, and, uh, and he was pretty much hurt. Uh, Trayvon played through, and, and he was hurt. Um, so actually, we really played with no Americans against that team. And, and I was really proud of our guys because for three quarters, we really competed against them. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think that's the one thing that it's not just about budgets that we have to look at um, to be able to compete in Europe. It's also eligibility, because most of these other teams have got five or six Americans um and it's hard for us when you only have three americans with limited budget
0: yeah like when you talk about clearly there was a lot of um well there's obviously issues with, with injuries and guys going down and stuff do you think that was just bad luck or do you think that actually was part of the scheduling of, of everything, you guys not being used to going into Europe, kind of the travel, the wear and tear, just kind of this whole new experience that all of a sudden it was just too much for guys' bodies who weren't used to it?
1: I think a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I agree. We had a bit of bad luck. The PR one was bad luck. Like we had a great preseason. Everybody was healthy um, at that point. Um, and that, that's bad luck coming down on someone's ankle and before we'd even started to get going. So I'd say that we had a couple of bad luck, like that sort of stuff. Um, But I think down the stretch, as we got um, into it more, yeah, um, I think the travel, one of our biggest lessons and the thing me and Rob talk about all the time is the jet lag the travel takes off of you. So by the time you leave your house, you travel to the airport, you're waiting around the airport for the flight, you're flying, you then wait on the other side to get your bags, you're then traveling from the airport to the hotel. uh, You're talking that's 12 to 14 hours every single trip. And you do that journey Sort of the day before, um, so you arrive in the hotel normally in in, in the afternoon. We did, we're leaving at probably most of the time five six o'clock in the morning from our houses, get into the other hotel at um, four five o'clock. Then you go to practice maybe six till seven thirty. You're then going to eat dinner. We then go for a scout and uh, video. Um, so then by the time you actually get to get get some rest, it's sort of ten ten thirty, um, and then you're up in the morning uh, for breakfast walk around um, and then you're straight uh, into sort of practice before that. Then you're into lunch, then into the last sort of video session and stuff. um, And then you rest for that play. Uh, And then as soon as you play, it's uh, obviously you eat again. uh, And then it's that that journey back. You have that evening, uh, you stay at the hotel and then you leave again at five, six o'clock in the morning, potentially sometimes. Get the flight back, arrive back into Leicester on that Thursday um, in that sort of six, seven o'clock in the evening. Guys go, go back, the rest. Um, and we got to be ready to, to practice on the Friday because often we'd make, we may play on that Friday. So there was times where we actually, um, I remember one journey, which was, uh, 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 it was great, but actually it was the hardest. We actually flew straight from one of the trips. I think it was in Hungary. Um, we, we, ha- we couldn't go straight to Newcastle. But we're playing Newcastle on a Friday night away. So, But we um, we transferred to, I think it was Amsterdam, and then went from Amsterdam to Newcastle. We got into Newcastle at 1 a.m. in the morning. Um, then we woke up in the morning. I remember everybody was like, we woke up for breakfast at 8 and couldn't could hardly function. We were exhausted. And I didn't even play. I was exhausted. Um, and um, then we had to get ourselves ready to play Newcastle, which obviously for us as top of the table clash normally uh, – you need to win or lose them games, depend on whether you're going to have a chance to win or leave the league. Um, but I remember we came back and uh, and we won that game. And, I, and me and Rob, after we travelled back after that Newcastle game on the coach, and we we're like, "What the hell just happened? Like, how did we do that?" Um, and, I, and I think that's one of the biggest things. Uh, and there was times where um, on that on that journey, we, we we played on a Wednesday away. We then had two games at the weekend and then we played away again on the Wednesday. So we're talking about all that travel plus playing two BBL games in the middle. I know Rob's mentioned this in a few of his podcasts previously, but when he talked to the other coaches and they turn around to us and say, um, what have you got this weekend? And they're like, oh, we, well, we'll play on sat- Sunday this week because we play Europe th- uh, this week. So they, they make sure that we've got, got time to recover and, and, we, and we're at home uh, on the Wednesday. So they've adjusted the schedule for him." and we're like, oh, we play Friday, Sunday. They're like, what? You play two games? So you're playing five games in seven days? Yeah, that, that's just the way it was at that point. Um, and I think that's the, the other part of, of the lesson learned is for any British team doing it again, for us to be able to be competitive on, yes, you've got to look at the finance. Yes, you've got to look at the logistics. But you also got to look at the scheduling because uh, it, otherwise it's a recipe for disaster.
0: I was going to say that, um, yeah, I've heard Rob kind of say that the league could have helped you out a lot more with scheduling than they did. Was that something that was addressed, like, was it something you were aware of before, like, in terms of, had you had that conversation, being like, look, we want this taken into consideration, it's our scheduling, can you try and move some games around or whatever? Or was it a case of, you didn't know until you did it, and then you're like, actually, this is a bit much, and now it's too late to change it, kind of thing?
1: And it was that. It was the second one. Uh, First of all, BBL were really supportive about us going into Europe um they did a lot to change some schedules around and to do some different things but with the changes that we made when it actually came to it um it was only once we were in it we were like actually we, we didn't even spot that um and we're like and then them sorts of things and and there's also a bit of there was a bit of fixture movement as well that kind of uh as because don't forget when we actually did the initial bbl fixtures we were only in the champions league qualifier so we didn't even know what the FIBA Euro Cup fixtures would even look like at that point. So um, and, and Champions League fixtures look different to FIBA Euro Cup and, and all different things like that. So we, we tried to do our best as we could at that point. But for me, the new schedule would have worked a lot better for us in regards to having the Cup schedule at the beginning, because actually, you know what, in that schedule, if you lose one or two games, you can make them up. Um, in the league, um, let's be honest, you look at the last 10 years, you can't afford to lose many games because often between four and seven games in the last column, that costs you the league. So if you if you already drop a couple of games because of Europe at the beginning of the season, that, that potentially... And, and, it, and it did. It did for us uh, that season, if you notice that, um, obviously we came back strong in the end to, to, to win the playoffs. Um, and, and that really helped us down the stretch at the end from the amount of continuity we had as a group, travelling around together and that aspect of stuff. But then first four or five months, we dropped a lot of games because of uh, bodies and conditioning and, and that sort of stuff. And that's with us investing into, we had a full-time strength and conditioning coach uh, for, the fir- for the first time uh, that season. And um, and I think that's the biggest thing for me is it's not just investment in players' budgets, it's investing in to have the right quality of support staff of um, not just the coaching team, the assistant coaches, but the medical staff and, and, and the strength and conditioning team um, is really important.
0: Going back to the the, the, the the roster makeup and the players and stuff, um, what, a, what when you were sort of putting together the, the... Obviously, you said that you were trying to go for con- continuity um, over everything and just try and keep together the core group. Was there any part of you that was like, well, actually, we should be looking at players that have that have done a European schedule before and kind of done this to bring that experience to the team. Was there anyone you were trying to sign that, that was there any near misses? Like I know there have have been conversations in the past with Devon, there have been conversations with obviously Miles Hessen. Um, Can you talk about that? Maybe near misses of guys that you wanted to recruit that maybe you didn't get, like just kind of just, yeah, roster makeup stuff.
1: Interesting you know about some of them conversations. So yeah, Devon and uh, Miles. we obviously had them sorts of conversations. But a lot of it come down to to money. Um, Actually, one of the people we actually had a conversation with when we got really deep, uh, and we only just missed out on him, was Ryan Martin, who signed for Becken. So he ended up playing against us that season. So we actually really, um, uh, we were really interested in signing him. And uh, obviously he didn't have European experience as such, but he was a a, a player that uh, we felt could be really good in European competition. Um, And being honest, for what we needed, we actually needed the depth in the budget and we needed to extend the budget more so than investing into one or two key guys um, that had the experience that potentially, and building a team is like a puzzle. I say this all the time, every year that we have this and me and Rob talk a lot about this, um, we have to put that piece of them, all them different pieces together to try and create the puzzle. Um, And some guys, um, as much as we'd love to have them as a piece of that puzzle, um, we just can't afford to put them as, as, as the piece because we might lose two other pieces because of that. And um, and that's where uh, I think people don't understand uh, how, how difficult it is um, to put a winning franchise together, especially, I, I believe, I don't believe we're one of the top three or four budgets in, in, in the BBL, in, in my opinion, from what I know. Um, and, um with the budget we have uh and everyone perceives us having one having one of the biggest budgets and and i don't and i don't believe that's the case uh but i do do think we do really well at spending it the best way um and our biggest thing that we've tried to do over the last 13 years is create an environment that players know that they can come here and they get looked after so okay maybe we're not the biggest payers in salaries and stuff but we have really good quality housing we have really we have nice new cars we have um strength and conditioning coaches a medical team we have a great coach we have great facilities and actually trying to create the professional environment is just as important than than just paying salaries
0: i'm gonna just quickly this is a a a little digression but semi-related to what you're saying um, I've always felt like having Joe pinch him was a massive, massive draw um, because all of a sudden all the players can get these fancy-looking graphics and these photos and kind of a a, a brand, so to speak. Um, how much of a blow was it for you guys losing him to Chicago Bulls uh, this this season?
1: Yeah, and I don't know Joe, obviously, in the last couple of years was the face of that, but I also want to give a shout-out to pete simmons at uh, five or six because to be honest with you it was him coming on board seven years ago eight years ago when we rebranded the whole club off the back of uh, of winning the league and uh, that was a big part of uh, what me and pete spoke about was trying to there was lots of different images and different things people thought about leicester riders prior to to that 2013 era um and when we rebranded the club at that point um and he was a big part of that. The whole perception of it changed, um, and he helped to start with that side of all, all of our branding of us as a club. um And then, being honest, when Joe came on board at a similar time, he came on board first of all as my operations manager. There, there was no even inkling about him being a media guy or a photographer, a video guy, or anything like that. um And actually, once he got into the operational side of stuff and really got on board with all that side of it. Um, we sat down and spoke and, and he worked quite closely with five or six on that side, um, and all of a sudden he became a YouTube master. He learned his <laughs> trade. Uh, it's probably the best way of putting it every time I asked him, how did you, how, how did you learn how to do that on YouTube? Um, and, uh, it is, it's phenomenal what he did, um, uh, and, and obviously everyone sees what he did over the last three years, but that three years of learning his trade before that, of learning what works, didn't work, and, and all that side of stuff um, was phenomenal. And the amount of time he put in, and yes, yeah, 100%. Now it's really easy for us when people, uh, when we're recruiting players and that side of stuff, um, I can send them the link to our social media, or I can send them the link to one of the O2 finals or, and that aspect of stuff, and or, or even one of nowadays, one of the games in our own arena, um, And all of that helps massively. Um, And Joe, for me, he was like one of the founding members of the the new era of this club. Um, And I I still speak to him uh, quite regularly anyway, and he's still doing quite a bit for us here and there, especially for Loughborough at the moment. Obviously he has a huge, uh, huge passion. And that was one of the programs he spent a lot of his time on uh, for us as a club. Um, and he'll always be part of this club and he'll always, this will always be his home as such in British basketball. And hopefully, uh, long may that continue. Um, but it was, it's phenomenal for us. Um, we're all about, for me, it was all about developing people. Um, the opportunity Vince gave me growing up, I wanted to provide that opportunity for other people to to show the impact it can have uh, on people's lives and what, what actually it can do. Obviously, that started originally as players. Um, and then moved on to coaches. We can talk about a lot of great coaches that have come through our club, um, and then other staff. And, and Joe's one of them guys uh, operationally, and um, and what story that is to come from uh, as a volunteer first of all, then a part time member of staff, then a full time member of staff to to now be working for Chicago Bulls. And and uh, and I think that that's what uh, I'll, I'll come back to uh, that that saying a lot of people will use. Will MJ saying some in some people. I want things to happen. Some people wish wish it to happen, and others make it happen. And uh, and I think in British basketball, if you want to be successful, you have to make it happen.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. On the so stay, staying on the media stuff, um, were you disappointed? Well, I should pose that as a as a neutral question. How did you find the media coverage of uh of the the riders going into Europe? Um, Kind of what were your expectations i guess did you think well look this is the first time that we've had a team in europe in 11 years this is quite a big deal uh kind of who did you approach what was the response kind of yeah like where did it sit on the media side of things i guess
1: yeah um i suppose the best way of putting it was initially we got a lot of traction when we announced we were doing it everyone was hyped about it everyone was like oh i'm gonna be there i'm gonna get involved and everything else. When it came to it, I didn't see see that interaction that that I was hoping, to be honest with you, the whole basketball getting behind it. And whether that's media, uh, whether that's actually just basketball fans in general, um, I think that one of the lessons learned by playing in Europe is it's not a a one-year thing that's just going to be successful. I personally think it will take five years of growth um, and development. And that's when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about the fan base. Um, because as you've seen, we were able to now sell out uh, the new arena for BBL games, but for Europe games, we really struggled. We struggled with mid midweek audience um, and trying to uh, educate people of how big time that was, how how big are them games. And and I think that don't be wrong. I think if it might have been easier if you'd had a big name like a, I don't know a, a, a footballing name like a Real Madrid coming into town, and and people might have perceived that to be a bit different. Uh, But when you announce the hungry teams that people never heard of and and that aspect of stuff. um, uh, And I think that the education piece needs to be over a number of years and we need um, British teams to be playing in Europe for a sustainable amount of time to grow that audience. Um, And hopefully off the back of that, we'll then be able to create a better audience. And and, and it's the same way as it took us five or six years to develop an audience for BBL. And I don't think it'll be any different for Europe. Uh, I think it's possible. But I do think it will take that time and, and, and that sort of investment uh, of that amount of time to make it sustainable so you could then rely on the ticket income and you could rely on the sponsorship from income from them games um, and the TV coverage and that sort of stuff. Um, but it will take a, a long-term investment. It's not just a, a short-term, oh, let's do it and it will happen and fall into place. That's not what happens in British
0: basketball. How much um, do you think the, the, the midweek game stuff hurts like in terms of trying to get fans there like do you think that's actually was not what else going on or that so it could be a good thing or is it well it's a school night and people just want to stay at home like kind of yeah how, how do you think people are perceiving that
1: i think there's definitely one side of one side is it, it, tough uh, because it's new it's anything that's new and anytime you change especially for a basketball audience they're quite used to being in their systems and even for us changing from a friday uh, from a saturday night all our games used to be on a friday saturday night when we moved to the arena we moved a lot of the games to a friday night there was a transition that that took a while as well. Um, so I think there's an element of, of that. I think the big thing in Europe that it really did open some doors to was the commercial audience, though. One thing that we found was we got a lot more companies, a lot more uh, engagement from companies in Leicester um, to bring in their staff down, coming down, doing hospitality and that side. And actually, that helped us to get more people engaged uh, in the sport even at the weekends because they, they then came down to see oh this is this is really cool and I think the, the business community of Leicester that definitely helped us with midweek games the actual general audience uh, at the point we get more um, of British basketball people travelling to come in from all over the country to come and see these games um, it was just really more of our fan base that continued to come and support um, and I think that, that's, uh, that was that was something that I kind of expected to be better Um, to be honest. And I expected the media coverage to be better as well because that would have helped us to to build the awareness. And like anything, we can do so much ourselves through social media, but to get to that new audience, we need mainstream media to to support us and back us with that.
0: When you talk about the mainstream media, um, you know, was there like... What was what was the mainstream coverage like? What, did you get any uh, mentions in national newspaper outlets or national radio stations or national national TV stations? Anything like that, or was it all very localized to you know Leicester and um, sort of Midlands?
1: It was all sort of really localized to Midlands. to People we already have networks with um, BBC, BBC Midlands covered it quite a lot. ITV Central they did some they did some stuff, um, but that was that was that was the main thing. Um, it was all very much coverage that we'd normally get. Uh, and again, it was only a once here and a once there. It wasn't a consistent, we're going to follow your whole journey and we're going to do, cover you every every time you play and have highlight packages from every game and all that side of stuff. So- um, Did you try and pitch and, that uh, to yeah. any
0: national outlets?
1: Uh, we, I suppose, did we pitch? We, we, we tried to pitch it initially to the ones we had contacts with and relationships with um, uh, and that aspect of stuff. Um, but as we find in this country, a lot of the time, because we're not football, um, it's it's a much harder sell and, and, and that's the, the nature of the beast we're in um, when it comes to the mainstream media um, and I think even other sports like cricket and rugby and other people have even found that more recently um, we're very lucky that we have great network within our media of the newspaper, the radio um, and the TV within our region um, but uh, more than the BBL partnership that they had with BBC Sport um, but there was no. Like we tried to get Sky Sports and News involved, and we tried to send them stuff, and, and we tried other things like that to try and get into other markets. Um, but at the time, uh, we didn't get much trend, uh, much traction on that stuff.
0: Have you ever engaged with a, um, a like a professional PR agency that kind of already has the relationships and networks? And the re- reason I say that is that I I used to be of the of the thought process that uh, I never really got PR agencies. Like I just think this is a pointless pointless thing to do, pointless exercise. And then one year for the Hooskies All-Star Classic, a guy, uh, who I won't name in case he doesn't want to be named, but he used to work for a massive agency, a PR agency that, that had the NBA contract. Um, and he, he offered to do some help, uh, help me out with, with some of the stuff for the Classic. And just like that, before you know it, I was, uh, had a full-page spread in the Evening Standard. I was interviewed on uh, BBC Radio 2. I had a, a, another piece with TalkSport. And it was literally like, it was the same, I was doing exactly the same thing I do every single year, but it was just purely from having someone with the relationships and the connections. um, They opened up all those doors. Like, is that something that you've ever thought about or or ever tried to do?
1: Yeah, we tried to work with a few different um, agencies on some different things. um, And the problem I found was, and I think the one with Europe is, um, we needed really the national organizations and a lot of them are based in London. And that's where I think if we were, if we were playing in Europe, in London, um, it might be a whole different beast a little bit. Um, I think the difficulty we had was some of the people we spoke to around our area and East Midlands based um, didn't have them national contacts that I think we needed. Um, And then when we went to, I did try actually speaking to a couple of ones in London, um, but they couldn't understand the message of you're a Leicester based organisation. And how that would interlink and stuff. So, uh, I I think that's where we we struggled at trying to get into them into that national agency market. Um, And I think that there is there is definitely a market for it. And I I agree. Any support we can get, and and we've been successful with working with them to get BBL uh, club sponsorship um, from working with some different agencies who have people on uh, their books and um, and can get us in front of people. Because I think that's the biggest thing for us is if we can get in front of people. we have a pretty good track record of, uh, of converting them and getting them on side and, and getting them to feel part of the club and um, and getting them engaged. And um, I always say this is, if we can get a sponsor to come down to a game, I feel pretty confident that they love what they see and they want to be involved. And they see the impact we have, not just on the game nights, but the community activities, the player pathway activities. Um, and I still think we're the biggest secret in town. And so many people that we don't to especially companies wise um i've never been to a basketball game i don't really understand basketball but when they come down they bring their wives down they bring their families down it's it's wow and, and it's that engagement that, that that helps us with um i suppose sustaining sponsors and that relationships we have with them um and uh and then being part of something and and uh, i think that that's that's a big selling point we have from british basketball that we can do with companies that maybe other sports can't do that. They're just in there, just as a sponsor, as a marketing. Um, we actually have that. They're part of the riders' family, and they're part of the club, and and that's what, and they feel part of it. And I think that's really important that within British basketball that we can offer that.
0: So we're talking about you know an extra extra budget needed of a hundred grand to go into Europe. When you then look at the results. Is it fair to say that it was a hundred grand loss, <laughs> or was that was there actual uh, any returns on on that hundred grand investment from a club standpoint?
1: Well, it depends on what you what you class as a loss because actually we, we 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 actually recouped most of that money, um, so actually it wasn't that much of a loss. There was a, there was a little loss in there, but nothing crazy, um, and that just obviously got built into our overall um, club budget that year. Um, So actually overall in that European season, we did really well. So thanks to the, obviously to the sponsors who supported us in that journey, uh, we did, we did okay in regards to ticket sales and and them sorts of things. So we generate some income from that. Um, And we were able to sort of make that work to the best of his ability, but for me, that wasn't a sustainable model just to continue doing that every year. What we had to do is find a way for us to be more competitive. We had to find a way to, and I think that's the reason why we didn't do it last year was we wanted to step back, learn from everything that we had and create a plan that would be a sustainable model that we could continue to grow and continue to, to develop that so that we had, we weren't just relying on, on potential or a number of sponsors that potentially could pull out year on year, and then you you're in and out of Europe like like a yo-yo, and that's not what we want. Um, so I think that's what's really important for us. Now we know what it takes, what to do. Um, and I agree, we probably need a bit more in the playing budget to to, to get that that extra guy that um, we felt we need to probably be really competitive. Uh, I thought we were really competitive. I know uh, everyone will look at it and go, well, he didn't really win any games or anything like that, but. Um, there were some experiences that we knew with one or two extra players that we really felt that we would have won them games and um, and different situations. And um, I remember there was one game in Hungary uh, where we went into that game and uh, they thought they were going to really beat us really easy and their budget was a, a big budget. And they, they the predictions leading up to it was this is going to be an easy game for us and everything else. And we played them right to the end. And one of the things was... Uh, uh, where their, their crowd actually started to boo them and cheer us because of the amount of respect they gave us and how hard we were playing and um, and what we were doing. And at the end of the game, every one of our players and coaches got clapped off by the whole of the audience because I think they realised actually uh, how, how, I suppose, the impact we were having compared to to what we were expected to be having, if that makes sense. And uh, um, and I think that that's, that's for me. It was never about yes we wanted to win some games but it was always that first season was always about learning learning as much as we can um, taking everything on board so that actually uh, hopefully down the stretch we could be a sustainable club and it wasn't about trying to just win a couple of games in that season it was all about sustainability
0: right why even bother like why aspire to play in Europe? Why have a Bbl franchise that plays in Europe? Why does everyone want to do it? Why does the country feel like it's something that we need to do when realistically you know you've got to raise another hundred grand you're putting your players at greater risk of injury you know we we haven't gone into Europe for ten years before like what's like what like why even bother in the first place?
1: well I think for me it's um it's about British basketball, and I think uh, for us it's a competitive nature um and we have done so well uh, in over the last, especially the last five six years before Europe uh, in in the British League. We'd obviously won the league numerous times, won the playoffs, that aspect of stuff. Um, so we wanted to challenge ourselves um, to that next step of well, what does it take? What does it take to get to that next step? And that and that challenge. And I think uh, anybody who's competitive um, wants to know well, how, how, how do you take that next step? And what does that look like? Um, and also, I think that we wanted to put British basketball on the map a little bit because I felt there was a BBL and other people give a, um, there's a previously, I wouldn't say most, maybe not as much now, but previously there was a, a different that aspect of stuff and, and different things and how professional it was on that side. And I think we wanted to prove actually, you know, we can be as competitive as any, any of these European teams um, and as professional. Um, and it's not just on the court. It's also what you can do off the court um, on that side. And I think, British basketball doesn't get the respect that it does deserve, and, 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 and I think that was a big part of it too as well. Um, so I think everybody within British basketball wants it to be the best it can be. So I think the reason why people want to compete in Europe is that next step afterwards. Yes, I think the lesson learned is that it didn't make an enormous amount of financial sense But hopefully in time with the lessons we learn, it can make financial sense. At the end of the day, uh, you have to have an investment into business um, with anything. Um, As long as you can learn how to develop that business to to make a financial, make it make financial sense. um, I think that 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 is the thing and and be, I suppose, really reasonable and honest. And I think other teams hadn't. I think other teams just went into it to go, okay, we'll raise a couple hundred grand and we'll lose it and won't care about the future and whatever else. And that wasn't our um, our method around it. Our method around it was learning, developing, because our ultimate goal is to be a sustainable team. So we weren't just going to throw money we didn't have at it. Um, we had to generate every penny that we wanted to spend on it. We had to generate. Um, and that's a bit like us as a club every day. Um, we don't have any... Um, rich owners or people pumping in hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds into clubs and we've seen that previously in the past and lots of bbl clubs and that's not a sustainable model for any british club Um, so for us it's all about let's find a way that's a business case to generate the income for us to be able to spend it Um, and sometimes yes you do have to have maybe a couple of years of losses um, potentially we have had losses in the past but it's on the ultimate goal of knowing and we're investing into something to achieve something to get the bigger picture and whether that's a to eventually have more team budget or to, to to achieve building an arena or to have more infrastructure and the staffing thing uh structure because i think that's one of the things that i don't think people really understand is actually how much of a staffing infrastructure that we have um and we've invested a lot into that over the years not just into playing budgets um to help generate incomes
0: when uh we were Just before we started recording, we were kind of talking about the history of, of teams going into Europe and BBL teams going into Europe and stuff. And, you know, there is a very, very rich history of uh, teams from the UK making forays into Europe. Um, and then there was a period of, like, it was the most recent period of, so, from 2000. So, Guildford went in 2007, 2008. Uh, and then there was 11 years where there was no one that went in until, until you guys did. And before that, you then had, you had the Brighton Bears, you had the Towers. And then there was even, I, I briefly spoke to John Atkinson beforehand. And he was saying in the, in the 95, 96 season, there were six teams that were actually competing in Europe. What is it that you think um, has changed in that time? that's gone from, you know, everyone, everyone's trying to go into Europe and everyone is, is, is playing in European competitions to now where it's like, it's a really much more difficult thing to do. Um, is it just budgets or is it something else?
1: I think it's it's definitely budgets, but also I think that the other thing is, if you look at historically, the teams that played in Europe um, really struggled to sustain their clubs afterwards. So the teams you are mentioning, Brighton Bears, London Towers, Guildford Heat, actually if you look at what happened a year or two after that um and i think that a lot of people that may uh, have been running them clubs at different points thought that that was the the way to run british basketball to play in europe and that's going to generate you even more money to be able to support your british the british game and that aspect of stuff um which i don't think was the case and we've seen these models throughout and it happens every single sport rich people come in and invest loads and loads of money um and just hope that that's going to create a return. And uh, I think for you to be able to do that, you need to have the right people and the right understanding of what it takes to be able to do that. Because just throwing money at it isn't always the right answer.
0: So when you made the choice to not go in back in the 2019-20 season and kind of take stock and, and reflect on things, was the intention always we're going to make a return in uh, 2020-21 season?
1: Yeah, I think that, that, that was our... our, our our initial thing was, let's take a step back, let's learn and, and we want to be sustainable. So let's work out what it needs to do for us to do that. Um, and that's what we were doing. We were putting a plan together of what what, what do we do to make this sustainable and to be even more competitive. We know what it takes. We, we were competitive, but what does it take to maybe win some games this time or, or move on and um, to the next round and stuff like that. So that's where we were up to. Um, and, and that's still a big ambition of ours obviously current situation um with where we're at now and um covid and um not even knowing when the season's even going to start for the bbl let alone trying to play in europe and travel and all them other things being honest right now um that's going to have to go on hold because um our priorities are obviously survival making sure that we uh, can get back into the uh, to where we were before and and get the club going again once the season starts and that aspect of stuff. And that's all of our efforts and that side will be put when we get that opportunity. um, And we know what we can do. Um, So for the moment that European plan uh, will be put on hold, um, but only on hold to hopefully to bring it back out again to, it's definitely something we want to do in the future. Uh, It's a, it's a big part of us as an ambition as a club and, uh, as uh, part of our mission to to be a sustainable club that, that can play in European competition.
0: Touching at, um, touching upon the 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 COVID nineteen stuff at the moment. Kind of what's the latest from the league uh, in terms of where you see things happening? You know, um, do you see this this season being completed at some point? Uh, kind of what are the options on the table? Uh, where where are the sort of team owners sitting on kind of what is going to happen and what they want to happen?
1: Um, I think as we sit here, middle of May, um, and looking at it, obviously it's meant to be the O2 finals, which obviously isn't happening on Sunday. Um, honestly, on my point of view, um, and this hasn't been decided yet, and we are having weekly meetings with, with all the club owners at the moment, having these discussions, but my point of view is I can't see how we could um, potentially um, complete the season um, on restart it just like that. We've got players all over the world and, and different places and that sort of stuff. A lot of them have gone home. Um, and who knows when that can even start. Um, and I think our biggest issue is as a sport is it will be impossible for us because we're so reliant on the fan base, ticket income, secondary spend and that aspect of stuff. Um, it will be really hard for us as a sport. We don't have, um, huge broadcast contracts like many other sports do that, that, OK, um, there's 60, 70 percent of their incomes uh, in some other sports or even more than that um, on broadcast contracts. So um, we're, we're very reliant on the running of the club and, and getting arms on seats and things like that. So I think until we get some understanding from the government of when that's possible, when that can happen, it's hard for us to make any defined decision. Um, but I think looking at the time periods that we're working on, um, I think one of the main priorities is just hoping hoping that we can start the season at a normal period um, in the current situation, let alone what we do with last season and how we finish last season. Who, who knows?
0: In terms of how you're operating Leicester Riders, um, are you planning as usual with the assumption that the 2020-21 season is going to start as it normally does and just sort of looking at players for that? Or are you, yeah, is that is that how you're approaching it?
1: I think we have to. Um, obviously, one aspect of it is the BBL team. We have a huge amount of other programmes and, and that sort of stuff as well. That we, But at the moment, we're planning everything um, that we'll start the season as normal. Um, and I think that's all we can do and then react depending on, we get, as we get updated advice um, from government um, and, our, and, our, and, our, and our partners um, to what we can and can't do. Um, I don't think we can do any more than that um, because... We don't know any more than that and, and I think all we've got to be is hopeful that we can start this season as normal in September and uh, um, and then if we can't, we have to be reactive and, and have plan A, plan B and plan C and what that looks like.
0: If you were to put money on the next BBL team we're going to see in Europe, uh, based on what you know, who do you think it will be?
1: Well, I think uh, obviously everyone's seen the announcements recently of uh, what's happening down um, at London, um, and uh, I, I think if 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 that investment company and knowing Vince and knowing his ambition that he wants to play in Europe and that aspect of stuff, if all of that works out how it should do, but let's be honest. Um, I think that 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 probably is the next uh, spot. Obviously, I know Vince hasn't announced anything yet or or done anything around that, but I think that uh, that has a potential. Um, Whether that's next season or the season after, who knows? Um, And then we'll then have to decide, coming out the back of this, obviously we have an ambition to continue into Europe. I think Newcastle have said it previously as well. They have an ambition as well. Um, But hopefully in the next five years, it'll be nice to see potentially if we if everyone can make it work financially in any club four or five clubs playing in europe and uh, helping put british basketball on the map uh, like, like you say the the good old days that are spoken about at different points um uh when it happened before
0: is there been any talk about like i've heard rumors of potentially the league changing uh, status quo on number of imports um that are going to be allowed americans and stuff like that like and then obviously the other big thing that ties into is obviously Brexit is happening and how that potentially is going to change things. Um, yeah, kind of what's your knowledge on that and where do you see that going, if anywhere?
1: Um, tough question for me on that one because I know what the answer is. Um, I don't know if it's been announced yet. So, but one of the things um, is, and I think it has been announced and what we're recruiting to at the moment is that um, we're allowed to have four Americans or four Certificate of Sponsorship players next year. It used to be three. Um, so it has been moved to it is being moved to four um, allowed five national players. So of which um, four of them can be certificate sponsorship players. So technically you could have four Americans and one European, or you can have five Europeans, or uh, but you can have up to up to four certificate sponsorship players that class as international players. And I think that's a, a step forward for us to be able to try and compete with European teams, where most of them have five or six allowance for international players. Um, And I think that would help a a club also be able to do that and compete in Europe. Um, I personally think that um, my personal opinion is um, we should be allowed to, if we want to be competitive in Europe and have similar models and that sort of stuff, why not? Why not have five? Why, why have the Europeans and the Americans? What's the difference between a European player and an American player and that aspect of stuff? And I think we need to protect the British players. I think that's really, really important uh, because um, we want to make sure that we're, we're a British league that is developing British players, that provides opportunity for British players to be successful in our league. But overall, I think we need to be uh, have the best product possible on the floor and be as competitive as possible um, uh, And that side of it as well.
0: It's a tough. It's a tough balance, isn't it? Because my initial my initial reaction to that is just like, oh, just it means we're gonna have even more Americans and there's gonna be less British guys getting shine and stuff like that. Like, how do you get that balance right, and how do you ensure that, um, you know, allowing more Americans into the league is not gonna hurt uh, the chances of having more British stars playing back home?
1: It, it, it's no different. Uh, if you actually look at the the, the 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 rosters up and down, most most teams had three Americans and two Europeans. So what's the difference if that European is an American or a European or well, what does that make a difference? Whether that's um, Tyler Bernardini, who is an American with an Italian passport or whether it's an American or whether that's um, uh, um, uh, the big guy Hussein up in Newcastle, who's French. What is, Does it matter if he's French or American or British? He, at the end of the day, um, whether he's French. Um, or whether he's American or whether he's German or or, or American it makes no difference that other player has an opportunity to take minutes from a British player
0: yeah fair enough I didn't think about that one (laughs) Um, okay cool that is uh, I think that just about wraps up uh, most of the things that I wanted to cover with regards to um, Europe is there anything else you think that I haven't asked you that I should have done uh, when you're talking about you know, British teams going into Europe, kind of key lessons, key learnings, key takeaways, um, maybe things that the fan doesn't understand or doesn't get to see from the front-facing things that are going on behind the scenes?
1: I think um, a couple of things, uh, and I think if you talk to some of our fans, some of our fans came across to some of the away trips, and they absolutely loved it, the away trips and that aspect of stuff, and um, we have a great travelling fan base anyway for a lot of our away BBL games, and I think that experience for them to go and see different places... But also to see Europe and that sort of stuff was phenomenal. Um, and I think the other things was um, the logistics behind it. My advice to anybody going into it is, don't just do it. Make sure you've hosted teams, you've been travelling to teams, you, you're used to understanding what it takes to do that part. Um, forget about the money side of stuff. Just the general experience of uh, uh, of, of delivering it, um, because I think that's really important. Because to have a great experience for you as a club and for that traveling team to come to you, um, and to, for you to provide British basketball as a, um, uh, as a positive shining light. Um, I think that's really important. And it's not just about money. It's having the expertise and the experience to do that. And I think that's, that, that's my biggest message to everybody. Um, and then creating a plan that is sustainable. It's not just a one year thing. Um, that hopefully you can be sustainable in it because otherwise if you're just going to do it for one or two years you might as well just write that check and put it in the bin and burn it up um it's got to be a a plan that can be uh financially viable in years three four five that type of situation otherwise what are you doing it for
0: was there anything that you changed in the um in the running of your club in domestic competitions like the way that you do things um is there anything that you've changed permanently as a result of what you've learned in europe
1: yeah, I think um, uh, the expertise of quality of uh, people we need off of the court, so medical staff, driven conditioning staff. I think that that was a big a big learning curve for us, understanding the infrastructures of other clubs, but also understanding what we need to be able to be competitive at that level. Um, I think the um, the professionalism of the the team at the next level. Um, we had most of that in place already um, around practice schedules. Uh, yeah. the big thing was actually we learned a lot about is eating we learned a lot about nutrition um, and how important nutrition was um, and we've, we've put a lot of that into BBL now and we, I suppose we're able to do that but for our away games and stuff like that so we used to travel to Newcastle, Glasgow and Plymouth in a bus on the day, day of the game we don't do that anymore so now we all travel the day before um, we'll stay over we'll eat right Um, And we'll be prepared and we'll be ready to go in them games. Whereas before, um, we would just travel on the day. So I think there's certain things that we've learned and developed off the back of that, the importance of togetherness of a group um, and preparation um, and nutrition. And I suppose a lot of stuff off the court to ensure the players can be really successful on the court.
0: And then, final question. Uh, I, this is the real final question. I know we're talking about the uh, sort of, I guess, the initial step of going into Europe. But the thing that we've heard repeatedly over the years um, is the EuroLeague and how much the EuroLeague wants a specifically a London franchise. Um, but of course, you know, the money and the budgets that we're talking about are many, many multiples of, of what <laughs> what you'd need to go into, you know, the Basketball Champions League or the FIB Euro Cup. Could you see a world that we have a EuroLeague? a EuroLeague franchise in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, do you think it could happen? How realistic is it? Do you think there are investors that are willing to make it happen? Um, yeah, kind of What what is your stance on that? Do you just think it's just way too much of a big step at this point?
1: Um, I think the biggest thing of all is you're talking about you need a 5 million pound minimum budget a year to to be EuroLeague standard. Um, but I think that's the smallest budget they have in EuroLeague at the moment from my research. Maybe I'm wrong on that, um, but that's what when I when I looked at it before. That's the type of budget you need. Um, so I think that to build a sustainable club, you're looking at three to five years. So you got to be you got to find investment of between fifteen and twenty five million, I think, to be able to run that team in in London to make it a viable franchise by year five, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that that's 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 the key question is. Does somebody want to invest into that type of money, and can they get the right people to make that a financial um, business that can pay them that money back after that period of trying to trying to trying to trying? If if someone's putting twenty-five million in a high risk, they may want to make a hundred million back. So you've got to work out how 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 long is that going to take? And I think that's always the 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 biggest thing. I think it's possible. I think if it's done right, it is possible. Um, But you've got to find the right people. Um, and they have the right plan to do that.
0: Perfect. Right, right, we'll leave it there. Uh, Russ, thank you so much for, for joining us today. super insightful. Uh, really appreciated.
1: I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for all the great work you do, Sam, for, for British Basketball. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.